This is the great Frenchman Jacques Cousteau. What a French name as well. Um, he loved the seven seas. Um, he explored them. He invented lots of stuff to make, it able, to make you able to uh, freely move around them. Uh, if, you've ever heard, if you've ever been scuba diving, you can thank this man uh, for help inventing it. Um, he's done some incredible videos uh, of the ocean and the landscapes underwater. Um, and I got this video for my birthday, uh, and it is just absolutely fantastic. Sort of 50 years ago, this guy going underwater. And so on Thursday, I was having uh, dinner with my mother-in-law, and we were chatting, and she was going, how much she loves Jack Cousteau. And suddenly, we were bonding over a Frenchman who's already died, um, and she was saying how amazing he was. And she was saying that um, when she was sort of little, she would see the videos that he produced and the TV series, and the sea was suddenly brought to life. Suddenly it was exciting and interesting and full of life. Um, and it says this uh, in uh, one of the biographies. So uh, uh, I can't even pronounce this. Um, so it's the French word for the sea musketeers. My uh, French is very poor. Um, so, it's the, 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 so there's this Jack and two mates are called the, the sea musketeers. Um, and so they'd seen these sunken ships before, but never the view that greeted them as they stood on the top of the rotting stern of the Dalton, which is a ship that had gone down at 120 feet. They gazed down at the ship's twin propellers deformed by their death, uh, deformed by their death throes when they turned their last revolutions in the sand. Then they checked each other's equipment stepped off the stern and settled the last 15 fleet feet to the floor of the sea. Cousteau handed the camera to Dumas and swam around the ship with Talies. To sailors, shipwrecks are an anathema, symbols of failure and bad luck that remind them of a fate that might overtake them at any moment on the sea. To aqualung divers, a shipwreck is a marvelous world, alive with fish and mystery, through which they may swim as if they were their natural home. And then this bit. So the, the sea musketeers dove on the Dalton for two weeks, venturing inside the wreck to salvage crockery, silverware, glass, glasses covered with coral, ships, lanterns, the oak steering wheel, and other loot. After a dive into that, Cousteau reckoned, um, after a dive into what Cousteau reckoned was the captain's cabin, he returned to the surface with a crystal vial of clear liquid. Uh, later, uh, someone uncapped the vial, took a whiff, and said the contents were a very fine pre-war perfume. Foreshadowing what would become generations of shipwrecked divers who decorated their homes and garages with artifacts and their discoveries, Dumas's hunger for treasure was insatiable. On Dalton, he gathered a lot of curious loot, Cousteau said. He found stacks of crockery, silverware, glass bejeweled with corals and a large crystal bowl. One day he found a midden of ouzo bottles and thin Metexas brandy bottles. He sawed off the oaken bridge wheel and dove repeatedly for dishes and silver. We suspected that he was collecting household gear for a wedding he'd failed to mention. And so we get this wonderful picture of them diving down and finding all these treasures on the, uh, the sunken Dalton. To many, the oceans 
can seem a bore. I don't know if you've been on a ferry uh, to France, but it can be a bit monotonous with the diesel engine droning away. They can be an inconvenience, getting in the way of trade and travel, uh, and uh, you can't even drink it. And to those that have uh, possibly been a bit event adventurous, it can be just a threat to life. You know, it's pretty unforgiving in storms uh, and uh, when things go wrong. But if you have a curious mind, if you have a little bit of patience, if you have the right guide, this thing that can seem a threat can actually prove to be a treasure trove. And I think the same thing can be said for Scripture. To the immature person, Scripture is boring, it is too complicated, and it is unhelpful. And you can notice the immature people because they'll often go on uh, about Leviticus and ignore all the other bits. But if you have a curious spirit, if you have a little bit of patience, if you have the right guides and listen to them, Scripture is a treasure trove. This morning, I was hoping to skip over a bit. You know, it looked like it was going to get a bit boring and I wanted to get some exciting bits where sort of Egypt gets the plagues. But I was stopped in my tracks by something that I want to have us to have a look at this morning. It was something that I could quite easily have uh, ripped over, but I managed to stop and read, and I think you'll find it's something uh, glorious. Jesus repeatedly said that God's word is vital for life, that it is life itself. And I wonder if your daily lives reflect that. Do you daily look into scriptures or is this little section on a Sunday morning the only time you are exposed to it? And so I encourage you to look at it with a little bit of curiosity. Look at it with a bit of stamina. Look at it with the help of the Holy Spirit and let it reveal its treasure beneath. If you've got a Bible, turn to Exodus chapter 5. Um, we're going to continue this story of Moses. Um, so we've got to this place where he's challenged Pharaoh, said, let, let God's people go. And uh, the king said, uh, flip you. I'm not going to do that. And I'm going to make life harder for you. Uh, so Israel got a bit upset that life was now harder rather than being released from uh, freedom, uh, into freedom. And so what they do is the Israelites... In time on a tradition, they turn on their leader and say, Oi, you, Moses, what have you done? You have created a hard life for us. And then it says this. So Moses has been uh, taken down by his own people as being a troublemaker and uh, a false prophet. And then Moses goes on, uh, and then it goes on. Verse 22 of Exodus 5. Moses returned to the Lord and said, Why, Lord, why have you brought this trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. Do you get the petulance in Moses' voice? This guy is not 
a settled prophet, confident in the Lord. He is irritated, he is frustrated, he is angry. I was reading various translations on this and there's this beautiful turn of phrase that says, after Moses got taken down by the Israelites, Moses turned on God. I don't know if you, I imagine this is none of you guys, but if you've had a bad day at work and you come home to your kids and then uh, they do something slightly out of order and suddenly you let all that pent up wrath go on them and you use them uh, as a way uh, uh, to express your frustration with the day. And kind of Moses has done that. He's had all this grief from his people and he just turns on God and he just unleashes these questions. There are these three brutal questions. He goes, God, why have you made things worse? Why did you involve me? And where is the rescue? Can you hear Moses' legitimate concerns flavoured with his anger? Do you know what? God doesn't shut him up. If I was God in this moment, I would imagine a rather choice fireball from the heavens would be appropriate response to someone getting angry at me. After all, I'm the Almighty. But thankfully, God is nothing like Kevin Taylor. God doesn't shut him up, but he lets him vent his frustration. I wonder if you can identify with Moses. I hope that you can identify with Moses. I hope that each of you will have read the story so far with me and you will go, you know what, Moses, I'm with you, buddy. I've been there. I know what it is to think you've followed God's voice and then for things to go from bad to worse. We are supposed to live with an expectation of hearing God. We are supposed to live with an expectation of hearing God and then act on that revelation of doing something about it. And do you know what? It rarely works out like we imagine. God speaks, we act, and then something unexpected happens that wasn't in our plan. And do you know what happens? We get emotional. Because we are emotional beings. And when things go from bad to worse, what, uh, because we think we followed God's wisdom, we get frustrated, we get angry, we get cross, we say things that are from the depths of the unrest in our hearts. If you don't know what Moses is doing in this place, I am afraid for you. If you don't know what it is to get angry with God, then I am afraid for you. If you don't know what it is to get angry with God, it is because you're numb. It is because you have learned to tune out God and not expect him to say anything. You have tuned out God and you don't believe in him for anything. God has just let you get on with it. And God is like a nice idea rather than a daily reality. I pray this morning, and I know this is a weird prayer, I pray each of you know what it is to get angry with God. Because like every meaningful relationship in our lives, 
connection with God can and, un and indeed must mess with your feelings. If you've got a long-term partner, you will know that feelings can, can go in, up and down over uh, all sorts of little instances and words. If you have a relationship with your child, the same thing. And it's the same thing with God. As if you have a genuine relationship with God, your feelings will go up and down. Angry is not a great place to stay, but it is a healthy demonstration that you care about your relationship with God and it is part of your daily experience. So I want to say, if you are angry with God this moment, you know you've followed him and things have got worse rather than better, I just want to say it is a healthy first step. It's not the destination, it's not somewhere you want to linger too long, but it is something that shows your faith inside is genuine. I want you to listen to this next bit. Exodus chapter 6 goes on. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. And God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as, to God, as God Almighty. But my name, the Lord, I did not make known to them. It is this, I don't know whether you noticed it, but it is this series of sentences that stopped me in my tracks. Perhaps the rest of you are less blind than I am, but I didn't take it in at first glance. Moses can see no progress. He can only see suffering and regression in the Israelite state. They have gone from being slaves to being slaves without straw to make bricks, so suddenly these things are harder. God has let him vent, and then he speaks into Moses' despair and discouragement. This is what one translator says, and I really like this. You are now about to see what I am doing. You are about to see what I am doing. God explains that he is like a duck. How good is that? How is he like a duck? Well, on the surface, everything appears that he's not doing anything. He, he's just looked like uh, uh, an immobile being who's stuck in the heavens. But underneath the surface, where the naked eye doesn't see, he is working away like crazy. God says, I realise that you can't see my hand, but I can swear to you that my hand is at work and you are about to see it in the very near future. Pharaoh's hardness of heart... That is not an accident. That is not an unforeseen circumstance. That is God acting. Israel's complaining. Yeah, that's God too. Even Moses' own failure at convincing Pharaoh to release the Israelites, that's part of God's majestic plan. All these things 
are part of God's plan for a story that are going to knock the socks off generations to come. It's all part of this mysterious narrative that will end up in something amazing. Some of us need to hear this assurance this morning. When we take stock of things, when we look at our lives, some of us may take a stock check and go, you know what, things are staying the same and I wish they weren't. Or even worse, things are getting worse. And our situation is even less wonderful than when we uh, weren't listening to God in the first place. We look up and go, Everything is wrong, God. You're impotent. You're not doing anything. You have apparently forgotten me. You said I was your child, and yet my situation shows no evidence of that whatsoever. I am drowning here, God, and you are doing squat diddly. And God would tell you this morning, I am a duck. You may not be able to see me at work, but underneath the surface, I am doing profound and amazing things that will be told for generations. I am not restricted by chronology or geography. I am not restricted by all the different laws that you are bound by. And so this morning, I want you to be reminded this perfect plan he has, this wonderful purpose he's bringing about, it will come to pass if you continue to hold to his promises, if you continue to remind yourself of who he is. And who is he? Well, that God's got that covered too. And there is this delightful reminder that says, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. You know, they're fine guys, but they know less than you. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're fine patriarchs. They knew God, but they didn't know God as well as Moses. Why? Because Moses got the name of God revealed to him at the burning bush. He had this name, Yahweh revealed to him, a name that the Jews became so obsessed with and regarded as holy that they would no longer pronounce it, that again and again their scriptures would not even write that word, but they would just say Lord because it was so revered and glorious. This name of Yahweh, which says, I am. Moses has gone out a limb in faith and God says, I know things have got worse. I know Pharaoh's got this hard heart. I know the Israelites are in a worse situation. I know they are making all sorts of accusations against you. But I want you to remember that moment when I shared with you something of myself that I have never shown with humanity up to that point. I want you to know how treasured you were and how I had to invest something special in you to achieve something that no one else would do. I want you to remember that name that I gave you. 
of a truth that I am, that I am ever present, that I am ever with you, that it's not an I was or I will be, but I am close by and near. And so this morning, if things aren't going well, if the situations that you prayed for to get better have got worse, I want you to be reminded of Yahweh. I want you to be reminded of that moment that he first showed his face to you when you said, you know what, Jesus is Lord and I need to give in to him. I want you to remember that moment, perhaps it was in the Southwater Lake where we took you down and in front of gawping Southwaterans who thought you were nuts, you went down under the water. I want you to remember that moment where you felt the Holy Spirit come in and you were like, oh, this is what I need. How can life be difficult with the Holy Spirit in me? I want you to remember these moments in your history and put a mark by them and say, you know what, the God that did those things will not neglect me. He will not forget me. He will not abandon me, even though this situation has gone from bad to worse. I want you to be reminded that Yahweh is always close, always loves us, and is always at work. And all this is contained in this name of Yahweh. I am. And when God says, I am, all your buts, all your protests, all your complaints, they fall away because you suddenly realize you've come against something more beautiful, more wonderful, more glorious than you could ever imagine. And suddenly your problems, your catastrophes, your dramas, you realize they are in the safest hands possible. You know, we live in a time where promises and contracts are really easily made and broken. Constantly, promises are made and then forsaken. You have politicians, you may have noticed, they promise you the earth and then they fail to deliver. Uh, business People, they're always making agreements and then trying to get out of it at uh, every opportunity when it's not expedient to them. And we live in a time where uh, uh, couples, they make promises and then at the first sight of a better option or a more attractive uh, opportunity, they abandon every confession they made. We live in a time where promises are so often got out of, if possible, but our Heavenly Father sees promises as very important. If you've got a Bible, turn to this last bit, and it's Exodus chapter 6, verse 4. I also established my covenant, my promise, my agreement, my contract with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they have resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, I have remembered my covenant. Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, 
and I will bring you out from the under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with the mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, and I will bring you to the land I swore with an uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and I will give it to you. As a possession, I am the Lord. He is, I am. And the covenant he had with Israel is going to prove this. And what is going to be the response? The Israelites are going to worship. When they are rescued, they are going to worship. They are going to sing songs that will be recorded and recited for generations to come. Each of us is posed the truth this morning. God is ever-present, ever-alert, ever-loving. I am. The death and resurrection of Jesus, that is the redemption that you and I need. You know what? The Israelites' problem of being enslaved by Egypt is nothing to the terrors of being enslaved by sin and death. And Jesus is the rescue plan. He is the man with the mission that has saved us. He is the fulfillment of the covenantal promise that God gave us. And you know what? Jesus' point in doing all this was not so you could be peaceful. It's not so you could uh, just live life with a smile on your face. It's not so that you could just be unstressed when catastrophe happens or that you could be right in arguments. The purpose of Egypt for the Israelites was worship. He was to bring them out, prove who he was, and then the Israelites were going to blitz God with all sorts of praise and worship. And it is the same for us. If God has achieved a good purpose in your life, it is not so that you can get on with the next struggle. It is for an opportunity for praise and worship. It is an opportunity to be uh, uh, jubilant at the character of God. I want to end with this. I really uh, uh, enjoyed a bit of uh, Spurgeon's take on it. Just let me invite you to join those already asleep and close your eyes. Listen to this. Great. Spurging on this. When you and I get to heaven, we will give God a glorious name, will we not? I have often told you of the old woman <coughs> who said that if Christ saved her, he would never hear the last of it. Love that. Nor shall he ever cease to receive the praises of all of us when he once gives us an opportunity of joining that happy choir. We will not wish to pause in the perpetual outpourings of our adoration and worship. 
I heard a voice from heaven, says John, as the voice of many waters and as the voice of a great thunder. I don't wonder at that description of the songs of the redeemed. For when we all together shall praise his everlasting and glorious name, uh, our united thanksgiving will sound like the sound of oceans upon oceans piled on top of each other. Atlantics upon Pacifics, Arctics upon these, Indian oceans upon them all, and all together roaring with the fullness therein, the majesty of praise unto the great eternal. God has indeed made himself a name. There is no name like the name of Jehovah Jesus under heaven, or even in heaven itself. At that name, the angels pause. To speak its praise, they fly. All the earth worships you. The everlasting Father to you, O God, we cry aloud with hearty voices of praise. And when we have paid our fullest homage, we feel that we have scarcely reached the lowest note of the anthem we long to sing. Faint is our song compared with what he deserves. Weak is the effort of my heart and cold my warmest thought. But when I see you as you are, I'll praise you as I ought. Heavenly Father, I am pleased that we get to spend time on the story of Moses when you showed so much of your character for us. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would be wholly in our relationship with you, that we would even allow our emotions to experience the highs and lows as we follow you, as we love you, as we chase you, as we try and um, obey you. Lord God, I pray, I pray that we would hear your response, that we would know that even when we can't see you at work, that you are working madly under the surface for your good purposes. Lord God, I thank you that you are the I am, that you are ever present, that we can trust you, we can draw near to you, we can experience your imminence. And that, Lord God, I pray that after all is said and done, we would be good at being jubilant and rejoicing in your name. That we would be a people whose lips are quick to sing. That we are quick to remember the choruses Tim has taught us. That we are quick to recite the words of uh, uh, worship songs that we enjoy on Spotify. That, Lord God, that we are being a praiseful people. And all God's people said? Amen, amen. amen.